Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. I'm your host, Sam Robertson. On today's episode, we're asking, can subject matter experts make good leaders? Joining me is an old sparring partner of the show, David Joyce. David will need no introduction to most of you given his extensive career as a practitioner, leader and author on all things high performance. However, today's topic relates to one of his more recent pursuits. Through his company Synapsing, David is currently providing strategy and decision-making consultancy to a range of individuals and organizations, both inside and outside of sport. The topic of leadership in sport is one that he and I have discussed a number of times over the years, but we've never hit the record button on the conversation until now. On this episode, we cover areas such as why subject matter experts so often end up in leadership roles, whether it's possible to be an expert and a good leader at the same time, as well as providing some tools that individuals and organizations can adopt to assist them with their own leadership challenges. Welcome back to the show, David Joyce. Hi, Sam. Fully caffeinated, ready to go. (laughs) Good. Thanks for being here again. Today's topic, whether subject matter experts make for good leaders. And obviously, we're going to look at this through a a bit of a sports lens today from our own experiences. But I think this topic is one that really transcends any industry and any discipline. Before we get into the content, what have you been up up to since you last on the show? I think it was probably uh, mid through 2022 when you were last on, on our complexity series, which I'm sure will come up today. What have you been up to in the last six months or so? As you know, Sam, I'm in the habit of making silly New Year's resolutions. So my New Year's resolution last year was to run every day. So I managed to tick off 365 days in a row there, which was good and not really laced up again since. So (laughs) I've obviously uh, hit my ceiling there. But look, in terms of the business, things are just getting busier and busier and and the like. So Synapsing is a sports strategy and decision-making firm. And we're doing a lot of work in organizational design, complexity, decision-making, primarily, but not exclusively in sports. So it's good. There's a lot of big decisions being made around the world in sport uh, because of financial constraints and also because of new opportunities as well. So we stand shoulder to shoulder with with organizations that are making those sorts of decisions and looking to add value there. And that, that's that's continuing to grow. So that takes that takes up most of most of the time. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of that today because it's very relevant to the topic uh, we introduced up front. Just before we do, though, the running, why have you not laced up since? Is it is it soreness or you're sick of it? Or I imagine you would be after 365 days in a row. No, no, it's not, it's not actually soreness. What I realized, basically, that the challenge was to run the number of kilometers according to the month. So in January, it was one kilometer a day, um, which is obviously really easy. And I had a minimum of 35 or 40 a a week, sorry. But then in December, it's the 12th month, so it's 12 kilometers a day. So the hard thing for me is, because I I find running, you know, okay, the hard thing for me was just parceling the time. But when I was going through it, I was thinking, I'm not actually really stretching myself here because running, I'm I'm very comfortable running. So I'm very much a land-based animal, as you know. So... um, my goal this year is to become a swimmer. So I've been focusing much more on swimming. Okay, great. And you're in a good part of the world for that, Sydney. Plenty of water, so that makes it easier. And maybe it might be a little bit harder in July. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually going to be the, the test is... So I, I tend to make these grand news resolutions on the 1st of January, as most people do. 
what you do on the 1st of January can often seem really easy. It's what you're doing on the 3rd of July. That's, that's the real test. So yeah, me, me, um, me doing open water swimming in, in the middle of winter, that's going to be the real test. Well, good luck with it. And we might check back in on you later in the year on that one. <laughs> so on to today's topic, subject matter experts making good leaders. Now, you and I were having a, a chat off air about this the other day, and we thought it might be a good conversation to, to share with the listeners. Now, before we get into, I guess, some of the detail around that, maybe let's start off a little bit about the, the genesis for this idea and our conversation about uh, why you started thinking about this. Now, from your introduction up front, it sounds like it's a major part of your work and something that you've probably seen a lot before you moved into this space in your, your previous roles in high-performance management. But is there a, a reason or a genesis for why you started thinking deeply about this and you're working so much around this topic of taking someone from being an expert in a very narrow area because by definition, it's very difficult to be an expert in a, a very broad area and transitioning either intentionally or being forced into a leadership role. And that's probably something we need to unpack a little bit as well. Sometimes this is intentional for people. Sometimes it's viewed as kind of part of their promotional journey. So where did it come from for you, this interest? It's a good question, Sam, because ultimately they always say research is me search. So I think I've done a lot of sort of reflecting on this because it impacted me. But so maybe it's helpful to talk about what synapsing is. It's the business that I run. Half of our clients are in sport, probably about 30% are outside of sport um, in the corporate sector, dealing with executive teams um, and the like. And about 20%, 10 to 20% is executive coaching. And in the executive coaching, half of those are in sport and half are out of sport. Now, I tend not to specialise in exec coaching of CEOs of you know big ASX 200 or Fortune 500 companies. Where I tend to specialise in, and I've just sort of fallen into this area actually, is, is subject matter experts that are really, really good at their job that have been promoted into leadership roles and are struggling, or people that are you know deep trench experts and they want to move into leadership and wanting to prepare themselves so i think i've i've sort of fallen into it and and i've and what i have seen is that this is a cohort of people that really struggle and that are underserviced you know we, we don't look after people moving transitioning into leadership well at all we just think that because they were really great at what they did whether that was a physiologist or an architect that they're going to become really good at at leading a team of architects or leading a team of physiologists. You know, we, we often see it in, in sales. So you take the best salesperson and they become the general manager of sales. So A, you're taking them out of what made them successful and B, you're forcing them into a role that is, um, they're not, they're not effectively trained for. So uh, I just think we, there, there's so much value that can be added to, to these people. And, it's funny because the Venn diagram of all my work seems to really collapse on these big sort of topics and or collide on these topics. And we see this in coaching all the time. So a, a coach might become a fantastic technical coach of a rower, for example, or a, a group of rowers. And then they they move to an institute or something. And all of a sudden now they're availed with the, the opportunities to use physiotherapists and physiologists and strength coaches and all these sorts of things. And 
the the coach led model is is the desired model in many areas of the world but that does create a sense of obligation for the coaches to become leaders and of these performance support staff and the like and a lot of coaches a are not equipped for it and b don't want to do it they just want to be the world's best rowing coach or tiddlywings coach or whatever it is but the the system is not designed around that so how do we help the individual but also how do we help the environment around them um so that we don't have this this these conflicts so that i guess that's a long answer to why i'm interested in this ideally i think many coaches would say that if the resource is available and that's a very big if for a lot of sports then again they should be left to do the coaching and, and someone else can be involved in the management or the organizational logistics and of course well-resourced sports have both of those roles and, and maybe the coach can just focus on that but yeah it's not always the case in fact there's probably more sports that don't and I want to pick up a little bit around why subject matter experts actually end up in leadership roles so often. And you gave a few hints about it there. And I talked about it up front as well about the motivations for it. And people see like it actually is the pathway. But you said earlier that some of your clients you're working with now are struggling. Uh, I'm interested firstly on whether they're recognizing that themselves or whether that's coming from the organization's they're working with because I think that's interesting in and of itself like is this do you get the sense in a sports lens particularly that it's more people pushing into this area because they they want to or do you think they're getting um, kind of drawn there from the sport saying that we need them to go in there which is very analogous to the sales example you gave I think presumably it pays more as well right that's right so I, I think it's seen as being the aspirational thing you know it's the it's the next step up you know you've got greater responsibility you've you, you get rewarded better from a financial perspective and you will have had this yourself but i've had lots of people over the years um send emails or speak to me at conferences or, or whatever say i want to be a, a high performance manager and they're just starting out on their journey really not quite understanding what the high performance manager role is in sport um and i know for a fact that this happens in all different industries, not just sport. So I think, I think part of it, Sam, is the, the fact that it is the next level up. And as humans, we're always desirous of, of getting to that next step. But also it is partly it's because of the organisation themselves going, well, um, you are the most senior expert in this area, you're the most senior computer programmer, you're the most sale, uh, senior salesperson, you're the most senior um, physiotherapist, you should be leading all our, our physiotherapists. And, you know, I think it's a natural thought to do that. I don't think it's necessarily the right one, but it's, it's natural. And, you know, it gets down to the, the Peter principle, which is, you know, a management writer, Lawrence Peter, you know, I think in the 1970s, came up with the Peter, Peter principle, which is basically to summarize it, that people get promoted to their level of incompetency. So you keep getting, you know, you go from apprentice, apprentice to staff, to, you know, senior staff, to manager, to leader. And it's only when you get to that very top bit that then you fail, that's, that's seen as your ceiling. We, we see this all the time. 
in sport. We see it all the time in other aspects. I see it in financial services. I see it in, in construction. I see it in all the areas in which I work. So you can add university to the list, I think. Yeah. Universities. So uh, I would imagine that you wouldn't, there wouldn't be an industry where you wouldn't see it. Sure. I mean, you mentioned high performance manager there. That's an interesting one that I think you and I have talked about on the show before actually, but in terms of the formal training, I mean, high performance director, high performance manager, whatever term you'd like to use. Yeah, it, it is one of those roles in sport. And, and there are courses available now, but invariably people are not getting management training when they're going to those roles, are they? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And and to be frank, there's some people are good leaders and poor managers. And if you're a, a staff member, you, you need you absolutely need both. Uh, and some people are really good at both because you know they've done formal training or they've they've learned by experience or they've had good mentorship or wh- whatever it is but fundamentals of management are just lacking all over the place and you know again not not solely in sport but absolutely in sport so when we talk about leadership then and you made a distinction between management and leadership i'm interested actually whether you think management fits under leadership or it's a different construct which you might talk about in a moment but what is what do we mean by being a good leader let's let's start i guess before we start talking about whether we can turn a subject matter expert into a good leader it's probably worth defining what that actually means i've got a couple of ideas in mind but i mean i'll let you kick off what what do you see as a good leader particularly in that sports realm or is it doesn't even matter are, are they kind of discipline agnostic the terms or things that come to mind i mean i don't think that i mean there's certainly not a a, a cookie cutter approach here there and there is no one person that is a great leader in every context never in the history of the world so you have a really good wartime leader and a really and they'll be a really poor peacetime leader so it really does get down to what there is is the requirement of the people that they're leading and what is the requirement of the context and so I think really good leaders are adaptable and are able to diagnose what is required. Now, if you think of it as a triangle with a leader at the top, you've got the, the followers or you know the people that you're trying to lead and the context, and you're constantly diagnosing that. What, what is required of me at this time with these, this group of people? Knowing that a group of people is not going to be homogenous. So you might be a, a different leader to one person and um, as opposed to a, as another one in your group. Uh, and equally, you may be a different leader to one person at one time and a different leader to the same person at a different time, according to the context. So if we boil that down, Sam, I think really what good leadership is, is doing what is required by the system and the people within the system at that point in time and leading them from a place where they are to a state which is in the future, which is um, more desirable than where they currently are, you know? And so if you're at the very top, the more desirable part of that is to maintain being at the top. If you're at the bottom, the more desirable state is somewhere north of there. So, and it is constantly assessing, diagnosing, and then implementing what is required at that time. So when when people when I coach people for interviews, for example, and the, the old chestnut is what type of leader are you? The right answer or the, the best answer is an adaptable one, one that moves according to the, the 
what is required of me at the time. It's a good word. And I think it does link in well with that word that you used around the system. When what I mean by that is obviously subject matter experts are working within a system, but they may be working on just one narrow component of them. And, and that recognition that they need to kind of be across the entire system is something that I think good leaders have. And that's where the adaptability uh, piece comes in. I guess some things from my own journey that I would I would add, and I'm getting a little bit more specific here, because it, undoubtedly, I mean, most of my day job now, and maybe listeners aren't even aware of this, but is, is around leadership and, and management as well. But I've found that consistency is really important. Probably being a father is the same as well. Not just with the processes, because that makes things more efficient, but also my own behavior, because it's very difficult to, to be consistent with that sometimes you know, when you don't feel like it. And particularly when you're dealing with multiple people, I think sometimes you if you're dealing with someone at a certain time of the day for example you may be in a better mood than than others so that's something i've definitely been aware of i think there's undoubtedly that moving into leadership is broader and it's being across that system more and i'm not saying it means that you become a generalist because i don't think it's exactly the right term but you are more of an orchestrator of things within the system rather than just one component of it Uh, administration these things are a more part of your role and then i think the other thing i've noticed which i don't necessarily think is just a trait of leaders because subject matter experts can have this as well but i'm not particularly great at is the importance of you helping with building morale in a team conflict resolution having empathy these things which don't come natural to me I don't think they don't come natural to me because in the past I might have been a subject matter expert. They just that's just a thing about my personality. But undoubtedly they're they're valuable for leadership when you're having multiple touch points with different people who are all got different personalities. So I think these are things that I've probably learned in the last few years as well to add to adaptability. But I think that's totally fair. And I mean, there's a there's a couple of things I'd like to comment on about what you've said. The the this notion of specialists versus versus generalists. I think that that argument is singularly unhelpful um, in many ways, to be perfectly honest, because it's too binary. It's you're this or you're that. I think if you are going to lead a team within, you know, whether it's sport or whether it's in, in healthcare or whatever it is, and you're the CEO or the performance director or whatever, um, it may be that you will have people in every one of your areas um, that reporting to you that are more specialist than you in that particular niche. And that's not uncommon. In fact, I would say that's probably the the prevailing sort of framework in, in many areas. But to say that that person is just a generalist, I think is probably a bit reductive and and often seen as disparaging because what their job their job is not to be the world's best physiologist even if that's where they've come from or the world's best you know cardiologist or whatever it is their job is to be a specialist leader so in that way you can be a a generalist in terms of having a broader uh, array of knowledge of a number of different things seeing how everything works together but your specialism is leadership or management and thinking that you are one or the other i think is unhelpful 
Now, the other thing uh, that I I think is worthwhile discussing, I'm interested in your thoughts on this because I've just been playing around in my head, is a concept which you'll know of, of course, uh, called interoception, which is basically your body's um, ability to perceive and interpret what's going on inside your own body and, and to to make sense of that. So your, your elevated heart rate, oh, this means that I'm getting tight with my left calf, you know, and being able to almost diagnose and sense check. Some people get it really, really right. Some people get it really, really wrong. And Steve Magnus argues in his book, Do Hard Things, that resilience is based on a really good, clear sense of interoception. Now, I've sort of taken that and run with it a little bit because I actually think really great leadership is interoception, not just of yourself, but as the the body corporate, so to speak, of the people that you're looking at and going, okay, so my job as the leader is now to sense check all the inputs that are coming from the various people in my team, all the inputs that are coming from the data that I'm gathering, the, you know, the macroeconomic environment, all these sorts of things, and being able to make good decisions based on that rather than just jumping at, at what one person in the team says. So I think that's a, it's an expanded view of interoception, which may not hold weight under scientific scrutiny, but I think it's a useful framework to thinking about how good leaders operate. And they've, they've just got a really great sense of, of what's happening and being able to interpret it and, and go, right, well, this is a danger signal, we need to act on it. Or, no, you know what, I'm asking my team to work really hard here. It's it's reasonable that they're all a bit grisly. I don't need to change everything about what we're doing because of that. There's undoubtedly been my experience as well. And again, that word, again, you mentioned scientific evidence. And I think, you know, I'm a scientist in, in my training and, and so are you. But there's definitely things that we see in the field and everyone would acknowledge this that we need to collect more evidence of uh, and that's probably one i would imagine that we're, we're spot on that it's definitely something that exists i think the word you're using is better but i always use the word around perspective which is related having that perspective and awareness of the surroundings and as you mentioned in terms of the broader system rather than just yourself is is really important and you gave some examples then it's, it's also things like a decision might be right but the timing's wrong and so you might delay it. And then you gave a good example then about the morale in a, an environment. Certain decisions might be the right decision as well, but it's not a hill worth dying on, so you let it slide. And in other cases, the reverse is true. And then it goes broader than that as well, which, which kind of comes into the, the back into that system conversation around you know what resources, if I go and make a change here somewhere, it might be the right thing for one element of the system or one department in the organisation, but it might affect the other part and, and having an awareness of that is really important uh, another thing is that word which we could do a whole another show on which is ego which is is more than just ego itself it's more uh security on you know, in, or lack of insecurity more importantly that people can be aware that they are not the smartest person in the room and that's fine <laughs> or they aren't the best discipline expert in that room and in fact not only is that not not only is that fine, it's actually a good thing and their role there is a, as a leader, not as an expert. So, yeah, these are definitely some things that are uh, synonymous across good leaders. But as we as we go through them, I realise that they are very hard for everyone to have and they require development as well. Uh, I want to talk about that towards the end, but before we do, it should be pretty evident from what we're talking about, but why is it such a problem then in sport that 
subject matter experts often end up in those leadership roles. And, and obviously, straight off the bat, what I just said then is an obvious answer to that uh, in terms of the fact that they don't often have training in some of those areas that we just talked about. Uh, look, I don't think it's a problem that subject matter experts progress into leadership at all. I think the problem is if we don't equip them properly to have nuanced conversations with staff to be able to understand what the system needs um, may be a little bit different to what you needed when you were that subject matter expert and being able to weigh up the opportunity costs. When you're, an, when you're a subject matter expert, you don't have to weigh that up as much. You know, you're, you tend to have the resources that you require for your area and you get really good at seeing things through your filter and your, and your focus. But when you become a leader of more people that are all vying for scarce resources, whether that's time, money, energy, support, whatever it is, you have to make decisions and therefore trade-offs based on what is better for the overall system. And I don't think that we train people well to do that. I guess the other thing too is that when you're an expert, people come to you for advice, to make decisions. You're the go-to person to fix things in many instances. And that's the nature of being an expert. You know, that's, that's how you've got that. I got to that level. And so you, you constantly, you've got a to-do list and you've got a bunch of boxes that you can tick. You know, I've solved that problem or I've made progress on this problem and, and these sorts of things. And you get a flood of dopamine. It feels fantastic because you can see in many instances, if we go back to the Kinevan framework, which I know you've talked a lot about um, both on this show and also in your, your recent blog, Sam, is that the role of experts or the domain of experts is in that, that complicated domain, the complicated space, and that tends to be ordered. So there, there is a link between cause and effect. So when you can see that there's a problem and you're an expert and then you go in and you fix it, you get this flood of dopamine, you feel great, it, it, you know, it, it, it puffs up your ego, people, it reinforces that bit of yourself. And that's healthy, you know, we're, we're designed to be like that. The issue comes though, when you move away from there, let's, let's think of the salesperson as the example. You, you close a sale, you know, the, you ring the bell, you, you get this flood of fantastic happy chemicals. It's, it's immediately reinforcing, immediately. Then we move that person from being a, the best salesperson to the general manager of sales. They're no longer doing that. And you can insert the job title. It doesn't have to be salesperson. It could be physiologist. It could be whatever. They're no longer doing that. They're actually getting results through other people. They're no longer getting this dopamine rush. They're, they're happy chemicals. They're no longer to, able to tick the boxes in the same way that they were. Because we're now in a complex domain. You're leading through other people. So if you've spent your entire career being, you know, progressing up the chain to being an expert in that ordered domain, you've formed an addiction to solving those problems. It's great, you know, it makes you feel fantastic. All of a sudden, you're, you're being asked to remove yourself from there. You're not getting those opportunity to solve those problems. So what happens to these people that don't, have not thought about it in this way? 
Well, they go back to what they knew, which is to solve problems, which is to go back in their role as a subject matter expert, even though that's not what the system requires of them. And what is it that those people get labelled as? Micromanagers. So the empathetic view of that, also the, the second order consequences are that the, the, the actual experts, the, you know, the people that are working in that, in that domain get really annoyed, you know, oh, my boss is always interfering, it's bad for morale, staff turnover, all those sorts of things. But the empathetic view for the, the leader is they're just trying to get a better mix of chemicals in their head. And we can label it as ego, and there's no doubt there's a part of that. And let's not forget that the world wouldn't be as it is if we didn't have people with ego. You know, it's, it, I know Ryan Holiday's got the book, Ego is the Enemy. I, I don't think that's true. I think unrestrained ego is the enemy. It, we wouldn't have been able to do the things that we've been able to do without ego. So the empathetic view is that these people are just trying to get a better set of chemicals running around inside their body. And so what really great training of these people requires is to give them enough of a sense of what is required of them as a leader and to give them enough wins so that they don't have to go chasing this dopamine. You mentioned they get, I guess, labelled as micromanagers, which is probably fair to an extent, but I think it's also inherent in it often results in molehills being made into mountains because people are actually actively searching for a problem to work on. So when they see a small problem, they are quite happy to put some time into it because of what you just mentioned. They, they're they comfortable in that space and they know it's going to give some satisfaction to them. So I think that manifests as well. And that's also not something that's typically desirable. I mean, there's so many different thoughts I had when you were speaking then in terms of, I guess, the complexity realm in particular. You talked about people being more used to that complicated type of problem where although it is in fact complicated there is a solution that can be followed it got me thinking a little bit about whether anyone can actually really be comfortable in complexity as a leader it's a it's a skill set that i think individuals can develop being comfortable in complexity but i think just inherently because an individual is smaller than an entire organization or a system. I think it's easier for them to be comfortable than an entire organization or a system. And in fact, I've seen good leaders very comfortable in that space fail in organizations because they're not ready for that kind of mentality, that type of understanding of a problem. For example, if you're comfortable in complexity, that basically flows onto how you view certain problems or certain scenarios in your organization. So, for example, you may throw your hands up in the air and say, all we can do is really probe this environment to see what will happen over time. I can't tell you if I do A, B or C that it's going to result in something happening. Now, in sport, that's not something across the board that organisations are very comfortable in. And it's probably not outside of sport either. And in fact, I think a lot of organisations that I've seen as well, and this is not a criticism because this is, as I said, I think this is across the board, not just in sport. There's almost a confusion between complexity and probing a complex environment for for clues and, and cues, should I say, 
with athletes being treated like lab rats or the organization being treated like a, a living lab, so to speak. And that's really not the point of, of what people who are comfortable with complexity are trying to do. But I think in sport, there's a much lower risk tolerance than a lot of organizations, a lot of disciplines. That's probably to be expected. We are dealing with people here and they're not there to be experimented on per se. But I think in a lot of tried and true practices that we see, whether it's from sports marketing through to how to develop the best athlete there's a sometimes a lack of questioning on those because we are viewing the problem as complicated when in reality it's actually complex i think people hide behind this concept of complexity a little bit and it it gets used as a synonym for too hard oh the system's complex and it might be but not everything within a system is complex. There'll be some parts which are simple. There are some parts that are complicated. Skilled leaders are the ones that can actually diagnose what part you, you need to act on um, and what part you need to probe. But I do think people hide behind this, oh, you know, it's it's complex. And that that sort of removes them from any imperative to act. So I must admit, I've, I've moved, I tend to move away from this. I, I talk about knotty problems. I don't particularly love the term wicked problems. So I talk about tricky problems, knotty problems, these sorts of things that you can actually make progress on. Because what we don't want is just a whole heap of people hiding behind complexity as a, um, as a shield for inactivity, not take responsibility for any action. And the job of the leader is to take action. It's misused a bit, the term, isn't it, as well? And I think you mentioned the term wicked, which by definition is a is a good term, but I think the understanding of people of that term is something very different to what it traditionally uh, should have been used for. And, you know, I even experienced that in my journey. I'm increasingly saying this to students. It's a very specific view of what research is as well in applied sport and so increasingly i don't even use that term anymore i, I say this is a project that we're we're running um, an applied project because again that that word research almost puts up a divide between what's happening in the day-to-day organization or, or day-to-day structure of a club or a franchise as opposed to uh, something else and, and obviously that sometimes is the case but a lot of the work that we do and our team does is more what i'd say a very applied research so it is a project in that sense so yeah terminology is an interesting thing in and of itself in this area more on this topic of of sme to leader do you think is it possible for people to be both at the same time and to flip back and forward i, I suppose the longer you're spending away from being a subject matter expert if we assume that being a subject matter expert is a journey and you've got to continue to work at it and get better i guess the longer you spend away from it the harder it is to to maintain that and i've found that myself like could people foreseeably do both and would we even want them to i guess is a is an interesting question in and of itself so it's a really interesting question actually and i think you've identified the temporal component which is which is critical is whether you can maintain the currency of research and knowledge of the space to be seen as as the expert the trap is when someone was once an expert marketer and is now the ceo tries to weigh in on debates using their knowledge as a marketer from 15 years ago and that does nothing but disenfranchise this their staff inevitably there will be things when particularly when you've 
fairly recently transitioned from an, an expert into a, to leadership, there'll be things that you will know more about than any member of your staff. So you will still be the expert, but really great leadership that is not um, burdened by ego looks to replace that skill set because now you've got enough on your plate to worry about, which is leading the system. But it does require you being able to untangle your identity. And that's that's the hard bit. You know, if your identity is going to speak at, at conferences as being the person who knows more about this thing than anyone else, it's really hard to divorce yourself from that. You know, I've had to do this the same sort of thing. Like it's so high performance training for sports, which I co-edited with, with Dan Lewenden and you, you've written a fantastic chapter in Sam. That's a huge part of my identity. I'm so proud of it. So proud of it. You know, I, it gets translated into all these languages, all that sort of stuff. But increasingly, it does feel kind of conflicted with my identity as I'm not that guy anymore. So, you know, I, I'm going to have to have a long, hard think about whether I do another book like that, because it doesn't feel cohesive and congruent with my identity as what I'm doing now. So I totally get it. I see why I see why people find this transition extremely hard, extremely hard. 20 minutes ago, you, you talked about the, the job of a leader to be, have empathy and conflict resolution and all those sorts of things. The conflict resolution bit, that's a skill that needs curating. And it's not going in and telling someone the answers. And yet that's what your job as an expert is, is to tell someone the answers. So you're not going to be successful as a leader if you go in with that mindset. So coming back to your question, is it possible to do both? Um, sometimes it is. It depends on the resourcing that you've got. Like if you're the only, I don't know, strength and conditioning coach in the team and you're running the entire performance department, you're going to have to step into that world. But it almost needs to be a Clark Kent Superman sort of transition when you go from one thing to the next. So I, I know that I had to do that when I was working full-time in sport, I would make a conscious shift about what I was wearing when I was on the field versus when I was off the field. And that was just a signal for me about what is required for me. Okay, I'm, I'm now into this role. So I think it is possible. I don't think it's desirable, but in the age of austerity, in the, that we're in, in terms of resourcing of organisations, uh, you know, we, we'll see it more and more. With all of that in mind, I guess, how can we improve this area and how can this be addressed? I mean, the obvious area is that people go and do training. We've talked about the fact that a lot of those characteristics of leaders are skills and even those that are, let's call them, quote unquote, soft skills can still be developed. Now, there's clear pathways there. Go and do some formal training and that. Do a do an MBA or do something similar to help improve that. But is it too late in the piece sometimes to do? I mean, it's never too late, but do we leave it to a little bit too later on in terms of when people have already made the transition to do that? Or indeed, are we? is it not about the person at all? Is it about the way that organizations are structured? Or should we hire experts in management that maybe have almost no skin in the game, so to speak, in working in sport. I know in certain executive management roles and leadership roles in, in many franchises, that does happen and it probably works well. Other sports are 
would would never do that in a million years. So what are some of these things that you've seen or that you're even actively trying with your clients right now? I've seen a number of ways that organizations and people have tried to square this circle, crack this nut, insert your own analogy here. I know people that don't have any technical training in terms of sport performance and yet are the athletic director or you know the the gm or, or something like that and where they're really skilled at is facilitating is making decisions based on information drawing information out conflict resolution all those sorts of things the advantage of that is it's harder to point the stick at them for saying oh you're favoring one particular discipline so if you're a physiologist and you come in to be a high performance manager I seem to be picking on the physiologist in this. If you're a physiologist and you come to be the, the high performance manager, you may be seen rightly or wrongly to be favoring the physiologists. And so when there's a conflict of interest there, you've got to work really hard to, to show that you're not. Whereas it's, it is easier if you don't come from any particular formal training. However, the knock on that model is that you won't necessarily have the, the right feel for making the right decisions. To be honest, I've seen both succeed and I've seen both fail. And it largely gets down to the quality of the individual, you know, whether, whether they can make good decisions based on the information they've got and be able to, to rally a team around them. Now, as to the first part of your question, which was, can you learn these sorts of things? You absolutely can. The, the soft skills are hard, you know, but they're, they're absolutely developable. And it's a requirement that they are developable to be successful. You get a, a grounding in leadership theory on, you know, in academic courses and books and all those sorts of things, but it is a full contact sport. Leadership's a full contact sport. That means that you need, you will get some bruises and that's, that's important because you've got to learn some lessons. But the other way of thinking about contact is you've got to be on the shop floor. You've got to be in there. You've got to be getting the sense of what's going on and speaking to your people, you're not in an ivory tower, you're not just spouting the latest theory from Harvard Business Review or, or whatever. You, you have to understand your people and your context. So I think that formal training is good, but insufficient. What is an absolute requirement is reflection and iteration. And the good thing about leadership is that you just get so many reps. If you're intuitive and you reflect, you're just getting reps all the time. This is the value of coaching, you know, for leaders to have coaches, for them to have mentors. And I, I draw a distinction between coaching and mentoring, but it's so helpful. So, so, so helpful. I've seen people transform with great coaching. We expect that of our athletes, that they transform with good coaching, but we don't expect that of our coaches. We don't expect that of our doctors. We don't expect that of of any of our staff that they get formal coaching, except for some progressive organizations. You know, we see it much more in, in business than we do in sport, but increasingly I'm coaching more and more people in sport because the organizations are seeing the, the value in it, whether it's a head coach or whether it is someone transitioning in towards that seen as a, a high potential. And a lot of the work in the coaching that I do with them is not, not specifically about what to do in this context, it is about getting them to reflect on what they did and what worked well and what would they do next. And that's the difference between mentoring and coaching is mentoring is someone that's been there and done that. 
So I can I can very comfortably do that in high performance sport because I've been there and done that in the same as you. I coach a lady who has got a, a string of hairdressers in Nevada in the US. I don't know the first thing about hairdressing, as you can probably tell. That's okay. I don't need to. I just need to know about people and how we can make her the best leader of her stylists that she can be. Whereas if I'm a mentor, I'm getting into the weeds about the latest style and, you know, why you should be using this type of shampoo and not that, that sort of shampoo. So I think formal education, great, but insufficient. Reflection, absolutely critical. Coaching and mentor, just so, so, so powerful and underused. As you were speaking there, it occurred to me as well that the the system as well as the person is really important in this. And you've really outlined a lot of really crucial things about the person there, but the system as well. I mean, interestingly, when we talked earlier, decision-making, although we, I think we both mentioned was a crucial part of leadership. It, we haven't talked a lot about it today, but we have on the, sh- on the show in the past, I know, but some other elements to consider here is, is around that system about how you're going to set up to make decisions because a lot of what we're talking about today has been around that individual as a leader themselves. But of course, the models in which you implement some of these things that we've talked about today, whether it's just decision-making or even formal structures around how you build morale are collective things sometimes relating to multiple leaders or multiple parts of the organisation. And you know, there's a couple that, that we've talked about on the show before, which uh, quite a while ago that I think it worth worth revisiting now. And we kind of alluded to it earlier as well, this idea of the best ideas winning out. And again, this idea of an ideas meritocracy, that that leader is able to efficiently collect the relevant information and have something in place, some formal structure whereby the best in idea will win out. And then again, I guess in that collective leadership model, which we, again, we haven't talked about a lot today because it's a little bit off topic, but how do you get a representative sample of the people that are in your organization and not just the people that are in your organization, but the aims of the organization themselves, which we talked about way, way again at the start. Any organization in any field right now is probably grappling with this at, at the moment in terms of getting diversity of backgrounds in their leadership, but also diversity of backgrounds in the opinions that are going to leadership probably more recently has also been work on maybe diversity of backgrounds isn't the only thing or even the most important thing more it's the cognitive diversity which is a topic we've covered here before as well and then of course that that invokes the notion of that mix i suppose of ex subject matter experts on the transition to leadership versus a, a mix of leaders that all are going quite narrow on things there's a lot in what i'm saying here I, I suppose but these are just thoughts i was having as you were speaking which is very much the organizational side isn't it as opposed to the, the individual and so if i pull it back to what you talked about it's the individual has to match the system that they're going into uh, and of course that will change as they change organizations that's and that's specifically why some leaders don't transfer well into new environments i suppose Oh, that's right. And that's why the if you ask the question, what sort of leader are you? And they come up with one particular thing. I'm lead from the front. You know, I do this. That is fantastic and works beautifully in the right context, but it is disastrous in the wrong context. That's why there, there should be no one specific leadership style, which is perfect. It's why, it's why the, the answer needs some nuance. I'm getting on to your cognitive diversity a bit, you know, it's something that 
I think is is absolutely critical because, and I think you and I have actually spoken about this, whether it was on the pod or just over a wine or something, Sam, but this, the concept of we've all got our own prime narrative, so which is the way we see the world, which is according to how we've grown up, our culture, our experiences, our wishes, our hopes, our um, aspirations, all those sorts of things that run through our head. And so the way you see the world is slightly different to the way I see the world. It just so happens the way you see the world is is reasonably similar to mine. But the way a, a woman from Ghana would see the same sort of problem is likely to be very different. And so the, the primary performance case for for diversity in decision making is that you actually get a, a more well-rounded view of uh, of a problem and a wider set of ideas to make progress on that problem and that's notwithstanding the the concept of it's the right thing to do from a from an ethical and a moral perspective is to give everyone the chance but when you see an organization which all look the same 45 year old white guys they all look the same there may be some very strong cognitive diversity in there because some might be rich some might be french some might be german some might be poor all all these sorts of things some might have come from a trade so you can have cognitive diversity in there that's not actually as visible to the naked eye but it is something that should be actively recruited and and you know that people be intentional about the, the hard thing about that is that we are hardwired to be with people that we are like and to be with people that we do like. And that's for a very strong evolutionary perspective, you know. Um, so we're, we're, it, it is very challenging to do that. But the, the performance case for it is, is really strong. I think this is where sometimes the mix between the leader or the leaders and that organisation can go wrong is when it's not clearly defined and I I talk about this a lot because it's something I just don't see done well enough about the environment is not well enough defined and what I mean by the environment is these are the decisions that are going to need to be made and when I say decisions I don't just mean business decisions I mean the types of people that you've got working in your organization how you need to interact with them and motivate them and admittedly they change in organizations over time but there's normally constants uh, that organizations are facing that to me should dictate what you've got in your organization in that leadership environment and more often than not that's going to require uh, diversity in both types of what you've you've talked about then but to me that's it seems like a really simple thing but i'm not sure that that gets done well enough in fact sometimes it works the other way it doesn't you know the leader comes in and then they define it which feels a little bit around the wrong way to me I think that's probably unavoidable, though. The, the leader will have an asymmetrically large impact on the culture. Whether it's right or wrong, I think it's just the fact. You know, we are a hierarchical species. If the leader is inclusive and empathetic and role models that and rewards it, incentivizes it, then that is the strongest way that you can change an organisation is to be like that. Equally, if the the leader is a, a tyrant, a micromanager that, you know, incentivizes hard work by being there at 5.30 in the morning, it would be very difficult for you not to see that permeate through the entire organization. 
Okay, so with all of that in mind, I'm not sure we've totally solved, as, a, as so often is the case on the show, we've totally solved everything, but I, I think we've probably come to the conclusion that subject matter experts can transition into that leadership role and, and they have to as well. That's the reality of it. Uh, but there's plenty of opportunities out there to develop their training and, and even while they're in their jobs, that, that transition is something that probably could be orchestrated and organized a little bit more either personally or by their organizations. Now, before I let you go, there's a segment that we introduced a year ago called Five in Five, and it really allows for our guests to share a little bit about themselves with the audience. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to kick off with five specific questions for you today. So the first one was, what do you see as sport's biggest current challenge? It's an interesting one, actually. Synapsing, we've done, we've completed over 500 hours of interviews of leaders in sport, outside of sport, you know, from athletes all the way through to coaches, performance directors, CEOs, spoken to people in gaming and in technology. And we we, we put together the seven key future forces, we've called it, as what, what we think are going to define sport over the next 10 years and then looked at what is going to be, what, what we can react to, what we can change and what we just have to cop. And I think most people around the world are, are seeing the, the macroeconomic challenges as, as being real. Inflation, I- increasing wages, you know, austerity, all those sorts of things. Now, how much of an impact that has is still TBC, but I think it's real. How much you can do about it, though, is is another question. But I think certainly that that bit is is worthwhile examining. There are some really big things that have come through this all this research outside of the macroeconomic sort of influences. One is the inexorable rise of women in sport, which is fantastic. That's a huge thing. I think the next thing is going to be the rise of athlete empowerment and athlete voice and what that actually means in terms of leveraging power. So who holds the power? Typically and traditionally, a lot of it is revolved around the coaches. Um, there's increasing pushback against that now. And that the, the balance to be had there is, is how do coaches be able to navigate that? How can you have real high-performance, gritty conversations, which we know is required to win gold medals and premierships and all those sorts of things, whilst balancing the demand for athlete well-being. So I don't think we've got the, the, the notion of well-being right at the moment because well-being shouldn't just be happiness. And I think in terms of what we, we can do as another force, the rise of mental performance and mental health in sport are the, the the big things that we're facing currently and I suspect we will chase in the next 10 years as well. So we will always find room for improvement with physical performance. I think they're marginal compared to the improvements that we can get from a mental performance perspective. And all that research was done just prior to the unveiling of ChatGPT. So what, what happens with that? think is really really interesting as well so so much on the horizon i know that the segment's called five in five and we've just had one in five then but they're certainly the things that i think are coming across my desk is going to be the the major forces moving forward yeah they're they're all big ones a personal one what about your best sporting memory you've probably got a few i've been lucky enough to see some of the world's big sporting events which will never leave me but there was something that happened when i was at when i was a kid 
I remember going to a footy clinic, so VFL as it was at the time, and just seeing some of my heroes. So I followed the Essendon Footy Club and seeing some of my heroes who looked so big compared to little old me or little young me. And then one of my heroes was getting badgered for autographs and he, he knelt down, gave put his arm around me and signed my jumper. And it just, even, even as I think about it now, th- th- this bloke would have signed a million jumpers. And it was a moment that he will have forgotten. He would have forgotten it within two seconds. And it has stayed with me for my entire life because of this one small interaction. And it was just, for me, as I look back on it, it's just the, an indication of the asymmetrically large impact that sport can have on young people. I, I will never forget it. And even now when I deal with athletes, when I work with athletes and they, they might have to moan, they, they will moan, as you will know, about having to do a community visit or, you know, going to the park for kick to kick with this particular school or whatever. They, they often lose sight of just how important their role is in creating happiness for young people. It's, and I think that's, so it's, it's not a direct answer of a sporting memory, but it's a memory to do with sport. Your point that you made at the end then is, is such a good one. How, just how positive or negative, depending on the way it goes, that impact, just an inconsequential thing like that can be on your future world in sport, but also just your willingness to go and pick up a football. Similar question, but who has influenced you most in your career? And again, might be tricky to come up with one. <laughs> yeah, it is. The person who's influenced me isn't one person. I think it's a collection of various events that have happened over the journey. But one interaction that I had was when I was working in the Premier League and the manager is a, a guy called Sam Allardyce. And when I recount this story, people don't often think of him as being you know, a really influential person in someone's career, but he really was for me. And I remember distinctly where I was standing, what what I was wearing, all these sorts of things, you know, because they're crystallised in your mind. And he said, oh, Dave, what, what do you do? Which I thought was a really strange question because, you know, he was the one that recruited me. And I said, oh, well, I, you know, help the athletes be, the, the, the players be fit, fast, strong, get them back from injury, all those sorts of things. And he goes, no, but what do you do? And so I went down into a technical answer and he goes, no, 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 you, you're not understanding me. What, what do you actually do? And I said, oh, Gaffer, you're going to have to explain to me. I, I don't understand the question. And he said, right. So never forget that your job is the same as my job. Our job is to help the dreams of young men come true. And it was like a light bulb going off in my head. It was the very first time that I had taken myself out of the granular detail of what I do and elevated, looked up and go, right, well, what's the vision? What's the purpose of what we're doing? And from that moment on, I've always tried to look up and go, is this, is what we're doing seems really important. Is it congruent with our overall purpose? How do we elevate ourselves here? So I wouldn't say that he was the most influential person in my career, but that interaction was certainly one of the most influential interactions of my career. 
It's a good one, and it might relate a little bit to the answer you give to this fourth question, which is a piece of advice that you would give to students coming through looking to forge their career in the sporting industry. The really important thing is to have a, a broad understanding of what makes performance and not get sucked into doing a job which is dull, dirty or dangerous because they're the things that the machines will take. So what is it that you as a thinker, you as a practitioner can do that adds unique human value and then running for that, that gap, going through that niche. But the only way you can really fully diagnose what is required is by having a really good base knowledge of all the things that are going on. So a, a broad knowledge having something be, which that becomes your your area that you can dunk in like your your expertise but not staying in that trench trying to trying to connect all the various different trenches and then looking to develop your speciality in an area that is not going to be taken by the machines and the final one what do you think the biggest change to sport will be in the next decade i don't know but my sense is the fact that because of technology Athletes are now direct to consumer. So we have got greater insights into athletes, their, their life, their home life more than ever. So whilst it's great to see a particular basketballer, footy player, um, baseballer, their exploits on the field, I think what's going to be of greater interest to the younger population moving forward is what they are like as humans. I think we're going to see increasing amounts of content about that bit, which is not a universal good because having unfettered access to the inner lives of athletes and the the pipeline from fan to athlete, which is going to be broader and faster than ever before, means that they are more likely to be subject of torrents of abuse about, you know, not performing their task on the weekend properly or, or whatever it is. So how we can safeguard that is going to be a really, really interesting piece. I don't know if it's going to be the biggest thing in the next 10 years, but I think it's going to be a massive thing that we need to actually get right and not just think that, oh, well, more access is better for everyone. Some really good anecdotes and insights there. David, thanks again for sharing a bit more about yourself and, of course, for joining us on today's show. Thank, thanks so much for having me, Sam. One Track Mind is brought to you by Track and Victoria University. If you care about sport and its future as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, and recommending the show to a friend. It only takes a minute, but it really makes a difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at TrackVU or at Instagram at Track.VU. Thanks again for listening to One Track Mind. See you next time.